and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm your host, Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change, and I am excited to be here today. This is our first podcast featuring one of our fellows in the third Yes, the third cohort, my goodness. If this is your first time here listening, you are in the right place, and I'd encourage you to go back through our archive. You can find them all on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, and listen to past conversations with emerging leaders in the environmental justice space, because that is what we do here. Before we get to it this week, I'd like to promote our super fun top 10 list last week from Agents of Change fellow Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn. She wrote top 10. 10 environmental research bloopers, lost keys, monsoons during interviews, the brilliance of duct tape, unfortunate mispronunciations, which was my personal favorite, and face planting in front of colleagues. We had a lot of fun with this list, bringing some lightheartedness to what is often very serious stuff. You can check it out at ehn.org under the special projects tab. All right, today's guest hanging out with me is Tatiana Tots Height a Doctor of Education candidate in the Agricultural and Extension Education Program at NC State University and current Agents of Change Fellow. Height talks about the importance of urban planning when thinking of environmental health, her meticulous approach to figuring out where she wanted to live, and how she's pushing for equity in environmental access and education. Enjoy! All right, now I am joined by Tatiana Tots Height. Tots, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing excellent. And where are you today? Where are you talking to us from? I'm in my home office in Graham, North Carolina. Graham, North Carolina. Give me some geography there. Where, if, if I was familiar with Raleigh or Durham or uh, okay. some of the, where is it at? I, Graham is halfway between Durham and Greensboro. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah. Is it hot? I, yes, a little bit. I haven't been outside too much other than to let my dogs out, but yeah. (laughs) So Tatiana, you, uh, Tots, you come from Chicago and then Gary, Indiana. Uh, So I was wondering, how did you become interested in science and natural resources coming from very, you know, very urban environments? Yes. So I, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was taking AP chemistry, not because I wanted to, but because I had no choice. And during the class, our teacher told us about um, this program that if you go through it, you typically get a summer job. So I just wanted a summer job. Um, The program was called Competitive Edge. It was a summer science program. And while I was in the summer science program, it did indeed lead to a job after called the Green Team, where we um, would do raised bed gardens and we would go around and pick up litter. Um, We did some invasive species removal at the National Park. Um, and it ended up leading to me helping with an after-school program about brownfields and all of this stuff. Um, so by the time that I got to be a senior in high school, I was looking at political science pre-law, but then I was like, man, it would be really cool if, if I could study the environment, like if there was something like environmental studies. And then I found out that that actually existed. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna do that instead. (laughs) So, um, then I started applying to schools with that major instead of my, um, initial plan of doing pre-law. That that's so great that so early on you had a program that 
influenced your career like that? I mean, sophomore in high school, I feel like I still thought I was going to be a baseball player at that point. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. Um, and I actually feel like my, in terms of engagement with the environment, I feel like it happened very late. Um, but I mean, I always cared about the earth and things like that, but in terms of actually thinking about it as a career path and actually getting to engage in outdoor activities and stuff, I know so many people who are like, oh, I was five years old and I grew up on a farm and all this stuff. And I used to go fishing with my grandpa and whatever. And I didn't have those experiences. So I, I feel like it was very late, but, but I, I didn't know what I was going to do in terms of the environmental studies. I was like, oh, I'll do consulting. Cause I heard people say consulting, but I didn't actually know what that meant. And so I was then not, and then I ended up now I've, pursued all these extra degrees because I started to hone in on what I actually wanted to do later. Was there one aspect, so you mentioned raised beds, um, kind of litter cleanup, and uh, was there one aspect of it that that you remember really touching you, that, uh, feeling very meaningful, or was kind of the whole program that? I So I something that, I, that stands out to me um, was... So later on when I continued, there were actually two of us who were invited to continue working with the organization um, for longer. And we were invited to attend a youth summit in um, New Orleans, Louisiana, with all of the green teams from other places throughout the United States who were doing this stuff. Um, and during that time, you know, we, we were it was after Hurricane Katrina. So we were um, I saw a lot of abandonment and things like that. But then I also saw some of the redevelopment that they were doing. They were doing all this green building and things like that, that I thought was so cool. Um, I experienced my first campfire on that trip and we did all these fun things. Um, We went canoeing and all this stuff. And so that trip to me was really, really impactful on my memory and actually seeing those green buildings and things um, is what later on when I was like, you know, I want to do work like that. Um, that's that's what then led me to the city planning aspect of environment. So um, just because I saw all this cool green development that they were doing in New Orleans because of my participation in that program. So this leads me nicely into my next question, and maybe you answered it a little bit, but it sounds like originally the acute interest was in the environment, the natural world, um, but you've transitioned into focusing more on the intersection of people and the environment, um, which, you know, truthfully, my career was the same way. I I wrote about the Great Lakes and then realized that a lot of these stories were uh, environmental justice stories. These were about the communities around the Great Lakes. So can you tell me a little bit about how how and why this people-centered approach appealed to you and, and when the environmental justice aspect came into your work? Yeah, there are so many things. It's it's so hard to talk about uh, how how I got to this point because there's all these overlapping experiences. So it's actually a totally different thing that led me to the justice aspect. Um, it was a class that I was taking my junior year of undergrad. Um, oh, I can't remember what the name of the class was. I think it was uh, Intercultural Perspectives on the Environment or something like that. And so we had done a one-week module on environmental justice in that class. Um, We had watched a a documentary um, where they were talking about fracking um, that was happening in Colorado and Wyoming. And um, there were people who were getting sick and um, they were getting cancer. Um, People were actually able to set their water on fire. They showed in the movie they weren't able to drink their water. And I was just like, this is crazy. You know, this was my first time hearing about this. And um, I was just incensed. I was like, this is ridiculous. And mind you, I was still trying to figure out what I was going to do with environment because I was at that time I was still over here. Oh, consulting without knowing what consulting meant. Um, 
And so we had to write a reflection every time that we did a different module in that class. And, and I wrote a reflection paper about, you know, my thoughts about what we learned in terms of environmental justice that week. And the TA in the class wrote on the top of the paper, um, it looks like you found your passion. And I've been doing environmental justice ever since. That's that's excellent. Uh, and again, this this question, maybe you just answered it or maybe there's another another answer. If you have a defining moment that shaped your identity, a defining moment or event my identity, my general identity, not as an environmental professional, texture. personal, whatever you're comfortable sharing. <laughs> yeah, I identity is a is an interesting question um, because for me, I feel like my identity is deeply rooted in my blackness, and that has not always been the case. You mentioned earlier, oh, you know, Chicago and Gary, Indiana. So I felt like growing up um, in in particular in Gary. So we moved there after my mom was ill and we could no longer afford to live in Chicago. I ended up moving back to Chicago later with my grandparents. But um, when we moved there, I actually experienced a lot of depression. It was such a, a, a struggling community. It was so, and it's still, being there actually does not make, especially as a city planner now, going through that community is very depressing for me. Um, but I saw a lot of negative examples of, Blackness, and it made me feel like um, that that to be black had all these negative connotations, and it made me want to get away from that. Um, so I did not apply to any HBCUs for that reason. I ended up going to a PWI, but it was actually while I was at my PWI that I became closer connected to that part of my identity because I realized how uncomfortable I was. I had grown up in my school; I could count the number of non-black students on my two hands. Um, and a lot of people say, you know, I didn't have a black teacher until college. Most of my teachers growing up were black. Um, and so then I all of a sudden was experiencing microaggressions, people who couldn't connect to me, people who didn't understand my experience in life. And I was so uncomfortable that I was like, wow, this. Um, and also on the flip side of that, too, the black friends I did have, I was now in a different environment. It wasn't a struggling community. So they were positive examples of blackness that made me grow closer to that part of my identity. So now I'm like. Now, when I work with youth and things, I'm, I'm always trying to make sure they have a positive um, perception of self because it took me into my adulthood um, to get to that point that now I'm like, no, I love my community. I want to be closer to my community. I want to help my community. It is not um, some sort of curse. It's just that that was a struggling community and that's not all we are. What I, I'm unfamiliar with the term PWI. Sorry, predominantly white institution. Okay, I should probably know that. <laughs> I went to one of those too. <laughs> yeah, so you got your MSIs, minority serving institutions, your HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, and then your PWIs, your predominantly white institutions. Yeah, sorry. Got you. No, that's okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I, you know, I was going to ask if if some of your um, some of your education and experiences since you left have have had you looking differently on your time in Gary or Chicago? Because I, I lived in Chicago. I lived in Ukrainian Village for a while. And coming from Michigan, you know, you drive right through that northwest corner of Indiana. And um, it is very industrial. Uh, and um, it looks like one giant brownfield uh, in a yes. lot of places. Yes. Um, so, I, you know, and you talked about this a little bit, but have your some of your education and experience, do you look back differently on your time in, in Gary and Chicago? Um, I mean, I love Chicago. Like, Chicago is home for me. The only reason I really that I don't live in Chicago now is because I really, really do not like being cold. The winters <laughs> in Chicago are super brutal. Um, 
I, you know, my last winter in Chicago was like 24 inches of snow and I had to wear hand and foot warmers. It was consistently in the negatives. Um, and you know, that, that was just the norm. So I don't, I don't even, and here in North Carolina, I don't even own a real winter coat. To me, these winters are not real winters. So, um, but Chicago, I love Gary (laughs) was still very depressing. I actually went back and looked at some of my journals living in that time. And I was like, man, I was a very unhappy person in that community. Um, I would like to, I don't know that I look back on my time there any differently. I mean, I don't regret anything because I think everything that I've experienced has led me to who I am today. And I'm very proud of who I am today. And I love myself and have a lot of self-esteem and so forth. So I don't um, regret anything really, but um, man, that, you know, and this is getting into an aside, but um, when I was in, when I was a senior, I wrote a, an essay, um, what are you going to do for Gary when you graduate? So like help the community better. And I had all of these ideas, all these grand ideas that I still stand by, even though I was 18. Um, and so I actually, when I was a senior in undergrad, I did my senior thesis, um, on like a, a redevelopment plan, um, for Gary, because I was thinking back on, I'm sure many people bring those essay contests and don't, you know, do anything with it. But I was like, you know, they gave me this money. I won like $500. And I was like, you know, I wrote all these ideas and I want to actually take my ideas. And so I had done my thesis and I went to the city council meeting and shared my ideas. And I was so nervous. Um, and I'm, I'm ranting now at this point, but like, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily look back on the time differently, but I do wish that I could do more for that community. Sure. And, you know, there, I think there's something about as you inch toward adulthood, uh, at least for me, there was a lot of push and pull between uh, living in a community that was kind of that needed help, that there was maybe opportunity to be part of this ground swell of uh, of activists and thinkers. And, and like you said, you know, make a positive change or moving to a community that kind of already had it figured out where things yes. were comfortable because um, I lived in both. And I think uh, I think both have their their merits. But skipping ahead a little bit. So after some education, you worked at the Nebraska Department of Natural Resources. And uh, you, you, you ultimately, but you ultimately moved to North Carolina. And I'm wondering, what was it about North Carolina that prompted the move? And tell me a little bit about the uh, PhD work that you're pursuing there. Yeah, so I, <laughs> again, this is the planner in me, but I, um, I moved around a lot in my adult life. And I was just trying to find out where I wanted to settle. So when you're talking about this whole thought process of go to community that you want to help or go to community that's already great, like definitely things that I've thought about before. But when I was in Nebraska, I love Nebraska for the record. Love it. But there were some things that um, didn't jive with where I saw myself long term. And so because I had moved around so much, I was like, I really want to find somewhere that I can go and stay for a while. So I want to be intentional about my next move. So I had done this whole spreadsheet where I did an analysis. I called it my relocation analysis. And I looked at one city from every state in the country and DC. And I looked at primary indicators in those areas of things that I would want to see in somewhere that I wanted to live. Um, And so Charlotte, North Carolina was actually number six on my list. I was going to go and visit all of my top 10 places and (laughs) um, see how I liked it. And so I had gone out to the area um, to see a concert and just explore for the weekend. And I was like, I just love it here. Um, And so then I started applying for jobs in North Carolina. Charlotte is, is, you know, it's the biggest city we have in the state. It's beautiful. Um, And it was just a hard market to penetrate. So I ended up expanding my search to just all of North Carolina and not just Charlotte. And so I landed in Kinston um, when I first got here. 
Um, so that is kind of what brought me here. And I, I had been thinking about doctoral studies. I had applied for some other doctoral programs before I came to North Carolina um, that I ultimately was actually not admitted into. Um, but everything happens for a reason. So I had come to North Carolina and then I was like, well, I'm, I want to, now that I'm here and this is my home, let me look at if there are some programs around here um, that might be of interest to me. And um, so I applied and I was admitted and I had full funding for my first two years. Um, and so that's kind of so people oftentimes think because I'm enrolled in school that I came here to be a student, but that's not the case. I came here because I wanted to be here and I applied to go to school later. Um, so now I, I'm, I'm, I do multicultural environmental education, which is deeply rooted in environmental justice. So to me, I still consider myself, a lot of times people, I do all this education stuff and people um, kind of think I'm more in the EE, environmental education world, but I really still see myself as an environmental justice practitioner because the type of education that I gravitate towards is deeply rooted in environmental justice. Um, when I first came into the program, I was really interested in looking at community engagement strategies um, because my program is agricultural and extension education. And so extension is very much about, you know, community-based education. And that's really what I was, what I was thinking about focusing on. Um, but then I took some classes about um, diverse practices with teaching or, or theory to practice and teaching populations. Wait, what was this called? Theory to practice and teaching diverse populations was the title of the first course that I took. And um, it led me to take so many more classes on how do you actually work with students from marginalized backgrounds or underrepresented or whatever terminology you want to use. Um, how do you work with those students most effectively? I started learning about all these practices that would help me with my work. And then I was, you know, trying to figure out how I could merge that with the kind of work that I already do, um, because a lot of what I was reading and learning about was really centered towards classroom educators. And that's really not where I am. I'm a community educator and informal educator. Um, but then I came across multicultural environmental education and I was like, yes, yes, this is what people need to be doing. I've been doing environmental education sort of since 2009, but really seriously since 2013. I've never heard of this. People in the field are not doing this. I've done it in several states. I've read a lot about it. I've gone to a lot of workshops. And I'm not hearing people talk about this. And so that's how I sort of started to get into that sp space in terms of my research. I want to hear more about that, but I have two very quick little questions. Uh, <laughs> one, what was the Michigan city that you looked at? And two, what was the concert you went to when you visited North Carolina? Oh, so Michigan. So I think if I'm correct, the city that I looked at in Michigan was Detroit. Um, and I actually lived in Cassopolis, Michigan for a while. Um, nowhere is not near Detroit. But <laughs> um, I looked at, I think, if I'm correct, it may have been, or it may have been, you know, I don't know. I was looking at, I think, the largest um, city in each state. I was looking at, a, I wanted to have a population of at least 100,000 for me to even think about it. Right. And um, now I'm looking, I'm pulling up my, my, my spreadsheet. Yeah, it was Detroit. Yeah. I still, okay. have, I still have the spread, my handy dandy spreadsheet still on my phone. <laughs> um, and the concert that I went to when I visited here, I actually visited Detroit too, but the concert that I went to here was Anthony Hamilton. Um, Tamar Braxton was opening for him. The Hamiltons were performing with him. Um, there was a comedian there. Uh, it was like one of the best concerts I've ever been to in my entire life. And I actually became a Hamiltons fan after that. I just saw them. I just saw them this past weekend at the Eno River Fest. Um, 
the Hamiltons. I got my pictures taken with them. And I only know about them because I saw them performing with Anthony Hamilton. Excellent. Excellent. That is that is awesome. What a great introduction to a new state. So I want to hear more about this. Um, so when you when you talk about, um, I want to hear about the multicultural aspect of this. So what does that look like when you're when you're practicing? Because you know, we, I think we kind of understand environmental education, but on that side of things, and this, the fact that you're saying you're not seeing this elsewhere, what does that look like? Oh, man. So this is so many things. But so multicultural environmental education has um, three different areas, environmental justice, um, critical pedagogy, and then multicultural education. So the multicultural education is actually something that I learned about, too, in that first class that I took um, has then five dimensions. (laughs) Um, so it's, I, and don't ask me that I'm going to try to remember them, but it's like, um, content integration. So we're looking at, um, how are we weaving in content in our courses? Um, for example, how are you, are you, are you referencing literature, um, of people from the communities with the students identify with or whatever identities that they identify with? Um, are you bringing a lot of different voices and identities into the classroom? Um, It's empowering school and community culture. So making sure that students feel empowered to make change in their communities. It's incorporating the communities into the work that you do. It's incorporating the parents into the classroom, bringing them in. Um, um, Oh, and then there's, there's just so many things too, because I get so rooted. There's all of these different practices that I'm sort of weaving together. And so for me, I'm also rooted in um, Gloria Ladson Billings work of culturally um, relevant teaching. And and so for her, it's also this idea of um, believing that all students can succeed. So you're not having this sort of deficit ideology that some students are just inherently um, not capable um, which in environmental education is is a big deal because so many times if you're working with urban students um, or students who, like me, didn't grow up spending a lot of time in traditionally what we think about when we think about outdoor spaces like, oh, wilderness and stuff like that, they're like, oh, those students don't know as much. They're not coming with that foundation. They might think those students are not interested. Students from those communities don't want to do this stuff. That's a deficit ideology. Um, and And in terms of my practice and what I do, um, that's really antithetical to what, you know, I was supporting want to do. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of different, it's a lot of different things, but, um, definitely incorporating environmental education. Um, you're looking at being really fluent in helping students to be fluent in, um, in their own culture, but also at least one other culture. You're, you're trying to make yourself knowledgeable about, um, their culture and background um, so that you can foster it and encourage it and, and make a comfortable environment for those students, which I recently just got schooled in because I just did a program where um, I had predominantly Indian students. I'm talking Southeast Asian. Um, it was not intentional. That's just sort of how the program happened. I had like 80% Southeast Asian students and I had never worked with that population before. I did a simulation activity that's supposed to like, it's supposed to lead students to this certain thing. And the what they did in the simulation activity went in a totally different direction than when I did that same activity with white and black folks. And um, she was like, and she was like, well, we're Asian. Like, this is what happens in our households. And so when I'm asking them to do the simulation, 
it didn't work very well. We still were able to have, we still had the conversation, but they didn't go where I thought they were going to go because they were coming from a different cultural perspective that I wasn't familiar with. And I acknowledged out loud. I was like, this, you guys went somewhere totally different because I wasn't, I didn't think about this. And um, that's something that I need to be better at if I'm trying to work with populations. I need to make myself more familiar and think about your perspectives as I'm planning programs. That it sounds, I even think of my own experience. If, if, if environment classes growing up wouldn't have been focused on things that seem so not tangible to me, uh, if they would have focused, so I grew up uh, in, in the Detroit area, and if it would have focused on the Great Lakes and things I was seeing, the Detroit River, uh, you know, of course you do these field trips, but the idea of making it uh, geographically and culturally relevant just seems like such a no brainer, but I think it probably makes a lot more work for people on your end instead of a one size fits all approach. Right. Um, I, I don't want to call it more work, but I do want to call it more intentionality. You have to be more intentional with your, with your practice. And I will say the only time that I think it will be much more difficult is for folks. A lot of folks are doing educational programs where they're only meeting with those students once, like let's say it's a field trip and they're coming through. So they don't, they might not know who's coming, um, they might not have opportunity to build rapport with those students, build relationships in order to, um, they might not have time to get a lot of that background education, unless you're repeatedly working with students who might be from the same, from similar populations, but not necessarily the same students. Um, so for those instances, it might be a little less attainable. Um, I mean, for those educators, it might be a little less attainable to do that. Um, but I just think you just have to be more more intentional um, in terms of learning from the students, giving them space to educate you, um, trying to break down the dynamic of who's in charge, who has the knowledge, who's right, and understand that those students have some sets of knowledge in their own experiences that they can help you. Um, but I don't think that by, by me trying to do those things has been any more difficult. It's just been um, me having to be more thoughtful. Right. And you don't just have this environmental background, but as you mentioned, you have an urban planning and development, uh, you know, skills and training. And how, how do you think those skills help someone, you know, working on environmental justice issues at the community level? Yeah, at the community level, it's definitely good. I mean, I feel like people, sometimes lay people don't understand planning processes. And so when these things are happening, um, when environmental injustices are happening in their communities and they're trying to figure out how these things happen, they might not always be knowledgeable about the processes um, that are happening from a government perspective. And so for me, I do. Um, for instance, I've been at environmental meetings where people are talking about, or environmental justice meetings, I should say, where people are talking about their land being taken through eminent domain. And um, eminent domain is a planning process. And so for those who don't know, um, that's a process by which folks can um, acquire your land. They can take it. It's a taking, um, but they have to provide just compensation. So they can't just take without compensating you. They do have to compensate you um, based on, you know, whatever valuation they have of the land. But um, eminent domain is supposed to be, you know, if something is happening um, for the greater health, safety and well for the community, like it's going to it's going to be it's going to better the community. Um your land is where this thing really needs to be because of whatever reason, it kind of needs to go through your area. Let's say it's um, electrical lines or something like that. They can't go around your house. They need to go through your property. And so they might um, exercise eminent domain to take a portion of your property um, to put, through, you know, whatever they're doing. So things like that, um, understanding zoning, another planning process, How how is it that um, things are allowed to be developed in certain areas? 
Um, for me and my community regional planning studies, I, I sort of made my own environmental justice focus, um, uh, but also um, the community engagement aspect. So that was really, I tried to um, learn a lot about community engagement and um, meeting facilitation, um, going through consensus building process with communities. And I used all of that stuff, you know, if I'm organizing um, meetings or to try to talk to or learn from people in the community um, because I made sure to weave that into my understanding. And that's definitely something that um, is key in planning, not that everybody focuses on that, but it's something that um, is a big area of planning is how do you engage with the community? Um, how do you get feedback from the residents and the community about things? Um, so it just becomes those skills are still useful, but it just becomes who am I representing when I'm using those skills? Right. And so you're you're obviously here now as an agency change fellow, which is designed to bring this kind of work that you're you're talking about and your ideas to a wider audience, you know, kind of lay folks, um, so to speak, uh, and less in the scientific realm or on the local level. And um, I'm just curious, first of all, before we talk a little bit about you know your your ideas and kind of science communication and getting your work out when it comes to media coverage of environmental justice, environmental access. Um, what are your, th- what are your thoughts? What have you seen, you know, where could the industry improve when they cover the issues and communities um, that you're, you know, that you're currently working in and in- engaged with? You know, I think what I have seen is that when I usually see coverage about things like that, like environmental justice issues, um, there might be blogs or articles that are coming from environmental justice organizations, not from the mainstream media. So um, they're reaching their audiences, but not necessarily a broader audience. Typically, when things do make their way into the mainstream media, it's because there's a big coup happening. Like, for instance, a lawsuit. Somebody is suing some sort of organization for whatever damage they're doing to their community. Um And so I think that I would like to see uh, more coverage of these things just in general, not just when there's, you know, a big coup happening, but also um, those things only tend to get covered for a couple of weeks. And a lot of these battles go on for several years, if not decades. Um, So people just kind of talk about it while it's hot and then they don't realize um, people from the public then don't realize that, that, that it's still happening because they're not talking about it anymore. Um, so that's, I, I would say, something that I think um, is a problem. <laughs> in terms of yeah, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is we, so we've covered, um, like many have covered, um, the hog farming industry in North Carolina there in the southeastern part of the state, um, which is cited in um, communities of color, most often Duplin County and other places, and just creates all kinds of environmental and nuisance problems. And um, I've talked to... When I was a reporter, I talked to editors. Now that I'm an editor, I talk to reporters. And I've always said, you know, part of the story is that it's still happening, right? In the, you know, if you say like, oh, that's already been covered. Well, that's part of the story. Why is it still going on? It's been 20 years since yeah. or whatever, since it first happened. So I think you're totally right. Um, and just an aside, I think personally, I think one of the biggest issues with media coverage of not just environmental issues, but communities in general, is the erosion of local media and the ability to have people embedded on a beat. You know, so much of our media now, including EHN, to be perfectly honest, is uh, is national. We're scattered. So we go to North Carolina, then we go here. Um, 
but to have that local reporter who can dig into an issue and keep on it, I think is invaluable. So I, I totally agree with you there. Um, so again, you're in this program, so you have at least some passing interest in, in writing and communicating your work. Um, tell me about any experience you've had with that, if any, and how you see science communication fitting in your broader work moving forward and um, what role social media plays and kind of just where all this has fit into your work and where you see it going. Oh, um, in terms of writing, that is something that I, so for me, um, my primary interest has been how do I write for the broader population? Because in an academic program, they're very much encouraging you to, to publish in peer reviewed journals. Um, people have this perception that if your work is somewhere that's not in those places, that it's not as valuable, it's not as useful. And I just don't like that. That's just plain and simple. I don't like it. Do I want to be publishing a peer review journal? Yes. But do I want my, my value to begin and end there? No. Um, also I just really don't have experience with doing that in general. You know, I never published any, unless you count my, th my thesis or like research projects that are published in a digital commons, um, the University of Nebraska Lincoln, of which there are three. Um, I had never really published anything prior to my doctoral studies. Um, and I don't feel like I've been extremely supported in that aspect in terms of writing either. Um, also, when I came into the program, you know, and as I was talking about doing community change and things like that, you know, I was talking about, you know, how do we communicate with people in such a way that it resonates with them and helps them to produce change? Um, a lot of times ag and extension education programs have a communication sort of focus. And I was told, you know, we don't have that focus here. Um, so there's really no avenue for you to do that. So I took, you know, a climate change communication class, but, um, and I had asked to take a lot more communication classes and they were kind of like, we don't think you should be taking all these communication classes. Um, but then I ended up going in a different direction and doing more of the culturally relevant teaching and multicultural education anyway, instead of the um, communication focus. And they pushed back on me on that too, but I was like, I'm not listening to y'all anymore. I'm gonna do what I want to do. So <laughs> um, for me, my interest in this has been mostly that getting that support in that area that I don't feel like I've gotten really. And I don't really feel like I know what I'm doing, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, social media, I'm very finicky about social media. Um, I, I do give a lot of talks and people are always asking for my social media and I never give it to them because <laughs> my social medias are personal social medias. They're not professional social medias. And I just don't want people looking at my personal life. Um, I'm kind of like, you can look at me on LinkedIn. I really don't want you to look at my, <laughs> even with my dissertation, you know, there was a faculty member who was like, can we have your Twitter? And I was, no, she said, no, she said, are you on Twitter? Um, because I want to tag you when I tweet about your dissertation. I said, yes, I am on Twitter, but I am not giving you my handle. You may not tag me. Um, I don't want faculty at the university looking at my Twitter. I said, when I graduate, then you can have my Twitter. So um, I've been on Twitter since 2009. I don't want people going back and looking. <laughs> I'm not necessarily embarrassed about what I have up there now, but I don't want people going back through the archives and trying to find what I posted in 2009 that may have been unsavory. Like, I don't, it's a personal <laughs> Twitter. It's not a professional Twitter. So um, I will say that I, I met with somebody about my brand and things like that as I was looking into doing business ventures and consulting and public speaking, all these things. And she was like, you have to stop hiding on social media. She was like, you can't do that. You can't be over here with your private Instagram. She's like, you have to stop doing that. So at some point I'm gonna have to get over it. But at this point I've not really been, um, 
I don't really intertwine social media with my work. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, everybody has their own comfort level. And I think there are there's something really healthy about having clearly defined boundaries, whatever your boundaries are. And it sounds like yours are very defined right now. And maybe they'll Maybe the goalposts will move later. I don't. Uh, I don't have social media. I have a LinkedIn. Um, and when I was an early reporter, uh, ten years ago or so, it was like you gotta have, gotta have Twitter. You know, it was all about marketing yourself and, and branding. And uh, uh, you know, they're very useful tools. And you know, hopefully it, during this program, um, you know, we can we can have some training and and, and learn a little bit more about it. But I, I think those kind of clearly defined boundaries are healthy nowadays. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, well, I'm saying that for myself too. So, so for both of us. It's an unpopular opinion. That's right. So Tots, this has been uh, fantastic. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I have one final question and that is what is the last book that you read for fun? Okay. So the last book that I finished and I'm a super avid reader, so I'm always reading something. The last book that I finished was Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler. Um, because for a book club, we had done Parable of the Sower, and then I just had to do the sequel. Um, but right now, I am reading um, The Mothers by Britt Bennett. Um, and I'm usually more into, I do probably I do probably 75% nonfiction and like 25% fiction. But sometimes I just get on these fiction kicks, so... The last one you finished, tell me, tell me just a little bit about it without, you know, spoiling it for us that may read it. So the, this is really good for our people, people who have an interest in environmental justice, I feel, because they're basically, she wrote these books in the nineties, but she's talking about um, people in the 2020s and 2030s. The first book was mostly in the 2020s. This book is now in the 2020s and 2030s. Um, and she's talking about all this devastation and how America has like fallen to ruin. Um and I just feel like it's so timely. And she, so she's following this one character going through her life in this broken, disastrous, like Armageddon having happened. I mean, it hasn't really been Armageddon, but I'm, 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 that's a, a hyperbole. But um, this disaster-stricken America and what her experience is. And she talks about, you know, uh, we might have to go to another planet because we kind of messed up what we had. So it's not only about the environmental piece, it's also a lot of social issues, but I feel like it's so timely, especially with all the discussions that we've been having over the last year and a half. Actually, one of the guys in the book, again, these are in the 90s, and he's like a questionable president. His um, campaign slogan was Make America Great Again. No, oh, geez, Louise. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have to we have to end on a positive note somehow. We gotta <laughs> we gotta think of a different question or a different, uh, no, we can end there. Um, Tots, again, this has been uh, this has been really fascinating to hear about your work, and I'm really thrilled to work with you. So, um, thank you so much for for being here today. Yeah, thank you. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tots, who made my job so easy. Some people are just very easy to talk to. I really enjoyed that conversation. If you would like to support this podcast and the work we're doing, go to ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram, where, side note, Aaron Gomez and Summer Ahmad, two members of our team, are doing such excellent work getting the word out and engaging with you all. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. Speaking of the team, 
The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Ami Zoda, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, Aaron Gomez, and Hannah Seal. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Asmal Hassan, a PhD scholar in sociology and national research trainee in interdisciplinary training, education, and research in food, energy, water systems at Colorado State University. Have a great week, folks.